Welcome to the sixth episode of Trust the Badge. In this episode, I interview Charles Humphrey, who is a former corrections officer, a former Secret Service agent, and for the most of his career, a former ATF agent. Mr. Humphrey is currently a firearms simulator instructor and a use of force educator at the National Law Enforcement Museum. If you are ever in Washington, D.C., I highly recommend visiting the museum on 444 East Street Northwest and stop by Mr. Humphrey's use of force simulator class where he teaches you how police officers and the law enforcement in general have to deal with tough situations. Let's begin with why Mr. Humphrey wanted to become a law enforcement agent. Uh, my name is Charles Humphrey. Uh, I guess it started back, uh, I'm from the Washington DC area originally, and uh, I always tell the story that I remember watching crime from the crime in the streets. So um, when I went to college, I uh, didn't really, wasn't really sure what I was gonna major in, broadcast journalism or broadcasting. And I took a, an, an elective course in criminal justice and it really piqued my interest. I said, oh, this is something that I wouldn't mind doing for a living. So I changed my major to criminal justice and it started from there. And uh, all because um, that one course that really piqued my interest. So it's kind of the the, the genesis of where I got into uh, the criminal justice arena. So why specifically the ATF? Well, I started in corrections and I always considered going to federal law enforcement. So my next stop was with the uh, U.S. Secret Service, been a couple of years there. And I met an agent who was uh, with ATF on a presidential detail one time. And he started to tell me about the, his, his life and his career and his investigative uh, activities, ATF. And that piqued my interest. So I said, well, huh, I think I could do that other than just, just traveling around and doing other things. So I applied for ATF. And I mean, our, our, our job description is kind of in our name, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Uh, so it's kind of a it's been a great career for 26 years. 26 years total as an ATF agent or just law enforcement in general? Well, law enforcement totals 33 years, 26 of those with ATF. Wow, you're a veteran. <laughs> yeah, how about that? What are or what were your main duties as an agent? I started my first office was in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. In addition to working on just a general number of investigations, I worked a number of uh, uh, firearms uh, cases, uh, drugs and firearms, convicted felons, and I I was able to uh, kind of leverage my wanted to know who wanted to be trained to uh, do in, uh, explosive investigation, become a certified explosive specialist. So I enthusiastically raised my hand, said, yes, I think I'm gonna like to do that. So I became a certified explosive specialist. In addition to that, I, I was the uh, uh, street gang coordinator in Nashville. So that was kind of where I was in Nashville. And then I, my later position, I went, I was there in Nashville for like seven years, then with the ATF headquarters. And I was in ATF training a few years later, after that, I was always very proficient with firearms. Coming from the Secret Service, where we firearms training was uh, probably second to none, I became very proficient to point I was a distinguished expert. So I came to ATF, go through the training, go through the academy, and I graduated top gun in my academy class. So I go back to my office, especially then Charles says, hey, man, you're, you're great doing this, and we want to make you the firearms instructor. So I became a firearms instructor, and later on, I'm with the headquarters. I became, I was the, the chief firearms instructor for the entire ATF. I did that for about uh, three or four years uh, as a chief firearms instructor. Then from there, I, I thought I was uh, going to pursue uh, supervision, so I, I applied for a position as a um, move to Trenton, New Jersey. And from there, I 
was there for probably five years. Then I went to Philadelphia as the uh, HIDA uh, supervisor, which is high intensity drug trafficking area supervisor. I was there for about four years. Then back to headquarters is I was in the Arrow Force Review Branch and uh, later on became the chief of that branch. And then that's where I retired from that position. That sounds like quite a career. What would you say are the highlights of your career? Uh, the highlight of my career, uh, again, I guess, uh, at different areas, different phases. As an agent, just doing those type of proactive investigations really piqued my interest. Uh, and I, I felt we were making a difference in our community. And uh, I remember one case, we were doing a sort of a roundup in a local community in New Jersey when I was a supervisor in Trenton. And uh, for a like a seven square mile radius, they were having shootings, like um, like one or two or three shootings per night to a point where the local residents were afraid to come out of their houses. So we had a series of uh, uh, search and arrest warrants. We did like a roundup and we arrested probably 50 or 60 of the top uh, drug dealers and armed career criminals in that particular area. And we made the arrest, we took them back to a staging area. I remember doing a press conference some of the local residents were walking past the staging area where we were uh, we were stationed, and we saw the residents in tears, crying, thanking us for making a difference because he said they were afraid to come out outside. But now we took all these heavy duty <laughs> street thugs off the street. Now they can come outside and enjoy life. So that I had an aha moment, uh, and I said, "Well, this is why we do this because people uh, needed not." be afraid to come out of their own house. So that was, that definitely was a heartwarming moment for me. And other than that, as a supervisor, training new agents to come on, I took training very important as a priority for me. I figure if there's no greater priority than to make sure a new agent coming on uh, with ATF receives the best training and experience that they can to prepare them to do the most, some of the most dangerous types of investigations, because we know with ATF, we enforce the federal firearms and explosive laws. We know we get to the bad guy's house. He has guns because that's why ATF is knocking on the door or making entry, serving a search warrant, an arrest warrant. So that's why ATF is there. So that was very important to me. Wow. That right there sounds like a movie. <laughs> so <laughs> So that's quite a transition to what you do now. So why do you work at the National Law Enforcement Museum? Well, um, after I retired, um, again, excuse me, my last position, I was the chief of our force review branch where we investigated all ATF agent-involved shootings and use of force incidents. So that's kind of, I spent four years in that, in that branch. And then when I retired, I heard the National Law Enforcement Museum had opened in like um, uh, October 2018. So I said, well, let me go down there and just kind of out of curiosity, see what they were doing down there. And maybe I can go and volunteer or, you know, attend some workshops or seminars, whatever. And um, I walked past the uh, use of force training simulator and I said, oh, what is that? And one of the uh, instructors there said, well, this is our use of force simulator. We provide the visitors an opportunity to experience what it's like to be a law enforcement officer that has to make use of force decisions. I just, oh, I said, I could do that. That's right in my swim lane right there. I can do that. And so I met those guys 
and they invited me down to come and participate. And then they they let me uh, instruct. Well, actually, I start. I'm sorry. I started there working there as a volunteer, and they assigned me to that uh, training simulator room. And uh, one of the instructors said, "Well, won't you just take a class?" So I said, "Oh, okay." So he let me instruct one of the classes, and the head instructor says, "Man, you're really good at this." Um, so we know we probably can't afford to pay you what you're worth. You have a lot of experience, a law enforcement experience, you're an instructor, a certified farm instructor, but we'd like to bring you on. Uh, we'd like to pay you to work here. I said, I said, um, well, no, I mean, I enjoy doing this. I do this as a volunteer. He says, no, you don't understand. We want to keep you, retain you. you you're that good. So they, they hired me to come and um, teach the class. And um, I tell you, it's made a difference because again, the National Law Enforcement Museum is not a cop shop where we just kind of try to attract all cops to come down there. And, uh, but we give everyday citizens an opportunity to give, the his, give them the historical view on law enforcement and also put them in the shoes of a law enforcement officer. So we have a, a lot of reality-based uh, exhibits and interactive exhibits. So people walk out of there with a the feel that, hey, this is what law enforcement officers do. And it really, it changes their perspective for law enforcement, how officers have to make that kind of a split second decision about using force. Okay, so that, that basically answers my next question, why it is important for the public to understand how law enforcement applies the use of force, which ultimately comes down to the fact that, you know, law enforcement, they have a really heavy duty job and they have to make sure that they're at their responsibilities at all time animosity or the relationship has deteriorated over the years because people have a level of mistrust in law enforcement. And I try to let them help to understand that we all remember the George Floyd case and how that ended. And now since the George Floyd case, there's been a lot more emphasis on the conduct and accountability of law enforcement. And that's why I try to bring out that officers are held accountable and to put them in a situation where they experience what it's like, because now the emphasis is on de-escalation of the use of force. It's not always officers just kind of, you know, uh, barging in or being aggressive and assertive and, and roughing people up, the whole use of force, up to deadly force. So de-escalation is very important because it helps the officer to uh, defuse a situation and it's been studies shown that officers who de-escalate use force less than those who don't. And the second part of that is the, the conduct and accountability part, I think, helps foster better relationship with or trust in law enforcement is a duty to intervene. If an officer is engaging in excessive force that's inappropriate, then the colleagues are standing by, those colleagues have an obligation and a duty to intervene and stop that officer. We all, we all know this incident just uh, the other day out in Arkansas, those officers were engaging in what I would deem as inappropriate or an excessive use of force. That duty to intervene, and now is part of the policy that officers should step in and stop those officers. So hopefully when people start seeing that law enforcement officers are sort of policing themselves, so to speak. Again, de-escalation and duty to intervene, a lot of agencies have now incorporated that in their use of force policy to hold their officers accountable. Because again, if there is a use of force incident, they go to a local prosecutor and that prosecutor will determine is that use of force, is it wrongful, is it negligent? 
Because if it is, that officer could be charged criminally to the fullest extent of the law, just like everybody else. There's civil rights matters. There's accountability within the department. Uh, officer could be charged, I mean, uh, or disciplined by the department if their use of force is not within the department's training and policy. And then there's civil action. Now we know that officers uh, have some have some protection with the qualified immunity. It sort of protects them against civil suits directly, but the local government or the, the departments could be sued civilly. And there was a 10-year study that was done and agencies or governments have spent millions and millions and billions with a B, in the case of New York City, billions of dollars over a 10-year span defending uh, lawsuits about uh, against law enforcement misconduct. Billions. I mean, so that's a lot of money. And that's, uh, again, conduct and accountability, I think, is two things that's certainly going to hold uh, police departments and law enforcement community accountable. And, and responsible, and hopefully we can do those kind of things, plus all the other parts about uh, community engagement with law enforcement and getting back to the community. And I know when I was uh, in, in with ATL, we had a program called GREAT, which is Gang Resistance Education and Training, where they sent law enforcement officers into the classroom for middle school uh, kids to teach them the dangers of joining gangs, street gangs. So officers, law enforcement going to the schools and to the local community. Again, this is a whole, all part of a, a, a comprehensive program to help and foster better relationship between law enforcement and the community. Okay, so everything you just said just made complete sense. And when you're talking about, you know, teaching officers, especially to intervene when something goes wrong in terms of use of force, how many officers do you exactly get in your classes, even though all your classes are open to the public? It varies. I mean, we can we can uh, accommodate 25 uh, uh, visitors. And sometimes I will get a cross section of law enforcement and visitors. I, I conducted one session. It was all FBI agents, <laughs> completely FBI agents. And I'll have a lot doing police week. I mean, I'll have a lot of law enforcement in the session 25. I may have 10 or 15 law enforcement officers uh, in each one of my classes. I'm sure the pressure's on you when you do that. Because Well, uh, I tell you, um, it's pressure in a sense that I want to make sure that, now I had a lot of officers say, well, you know, uh, we really are not getting this kind of training in our departments. Because again, a part of that de-escalation piece is again, I, as I mentioned when you were there, um, that now officers commonly interact with someone who has a mental health issue, emotionally disturbed individuals, and again, I mentioned my other project involves autism. I have called, it's called my Zachary project, named after a family member who has an autistic son. So again, de-escalation, if an officer goes into a situation too fast, too strong, too hot, too aggressive, the officer could set in motion a situation that, that causes an officer to have to use force. De-escalation also helps defuse that situation to get the person to voluntarily comply with that officer without having to use force. De-escalation also sometimes has a reverse effect. Maybe it helps calm the officer down. Maybe the person is not really not resisting, but the officer maybe had to pursue that suspect or that individual for three or four blocks or do a traffic stop. And it's the officer who is really escalating the situation by their language and their body positioning. So maybe the officer needs to de-escalate regain and restore the trust from the citizens that the police departments, law enforcement community 
or doing things to help minimize the opportunity to have to use force. So in terms of officers getting training from your classes and just training in general, you mentioned how some police departments don't give the same training that you give them. Do you think that should be more aware for most police departments that they should have more use of force training? I think a lot more departments are doing that now. I know in the state of New Jersey, I think the whole state of New Jersey, they are required, law enforcement officers are required to go through ICAP. It's like a duty to intervene training. There's a whole curriculum devoted to duty to intervene. And a lot more departments have now doing their annual training, in-service training, they will bring in some, uh, maybe some public health officials who may come in and talk about mental health and uh, the duty to intervene and also de-escalation. I think a, a lot more departments, I mean, I've done, I've picked up use of force policies from several of the major departments that have now, again, a lot of the major departments were talking about use of force and duty to intervene and de-escalation prior to that, but in terms of it being part of your policy. Now, I know, again, I'm retired from ATF. ATF just recently uh, revised their use of force policy and it addresses de-escalation and it addresses a duty to uh, intervene or intercede. So um, I think it's got a lot of traction, I think, um, across the country, nationwide, in the law enforcement communities. I know the International Associations, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, or ICP, they meet annually and part of their uh, meeting, they talk about these kind of things. So a lot of police chiefs are going back to their departments after attending this conference and they're incorporating these areas in their departments. So I think it's gotten, it, 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 it's gotten a widespread policy in terms of these police departments. So I think you'll see a lot more departments are making sure that's a priority with their departments. That's definitely great to hear because especially down here in Florida where we have things such as de-escalation training, uh, even though we're only teenagers, uh, de-escalation is quite important in all policing. So that's great to hear that it's being more common. Yeah, I mean, your, your most effective tool you have as a law enforcement officer is not your, your weapon, not your taser, your baton, or your pepper spray, it's your verbal skills. Officers who use their, influence, their, their verbal skills to influence, persuade, verbal judo, so to speak, use their verbal skills more effectively, have a tendency to use force less. So I think there's a lot to be said about that. So de-escalation is definitely a, a, a has some, some value to it. And I think we're seeing a lot less incidents. Now, people always ask, are there statistics that by use of force incidents? I mean, I don't think there's a, a central deposit or repository about uh, use of force incidents. I mean, every department may capture use of force incidents, but the last one of the studies I've seen that indicates that officers using force really is a very small percentage of, of all law enforcement and center, uh, citizen encounters. So uh, people may think it's uh, widespread, but obviously if there's a incident that garners, uh, everybody has a cell phone, everybody, uh, you know, CNN or local stations is going to pick up so the, the media gets a hold of it. It's going to spread. So it may seem like it's widespread uh, use of force is out of control. And, and some, there's been, obviously, there's been some egregious cases of officers going well beyond uh, their training and policy. Again, 
like in Arkansas, my early view of that, of those officers, I mean, uh, I think more information is, is to be revealed, but just looking at that on the news, you think, wow, these officers, the person was um, certainly three officers on one individual. Again, a force should be reasonable under the circumstances, and force should be proportional, meaning officers use that amount of force necessary to gain control. And uh, once that level of resistance ends by the suspect, the use of force should end based upon, the again, the resistance of the suspect or the severity of the crime, person's armed. Uh, then, but once that person is subdued and, and no longer a threat, the use of force should immediately end. And sometimes it continues. Again, as in the George Floyd case, it was eight minutes and 46 seconds. Once Mr. Floyd, who was prone down handcuffed behind his back with three officers on him, no longer posed a significant threat, that use of force should have ended. But when it comes to use of force, do you see more successful use of force rates when it comes to police officers taking your class or just classes in general? They're only with me for 45 minutes. So I think what I'm encouraging them to do is go back to your local departments and say, hey, chief, I was at the National Law Enforcement Museum. They have a simulator. So, so A, what is, is it in our budget to purchase a simulator and maybe go back and look at their use of force policy and see if there's many updates. See if de-escalation and duty to intervene is a part of their use of force policy. So again, a lot of departments who have purchased simulators, now when an officer comes on a job, brand new officer, they will run them through a simulator. And part of that simulator training involves an officer being trained on how to de-escalate. And I think when you start an officer, when they first come on a job, understanding the importance of de-escalation, I think they'll be better suited down the road because you have an officer who's been on the job for 15 years, now you try to introduce the officer to some new strategies and techniques. Sometimes they may not be as receptive as an officer who's coming on a job fresh out of the academy. Sometimes you have to unlearn people to relearn them. I know it's bad English, but that's kind of how you have to do it. You have to unlearn them from bad habits and bad practices. And uh, I think you catch them early enough. Or if the department itself makes this a priority, this is our use of force policy. You will, when possible, practical, safe to do so, you will attempt to de-escalate. And we know officers have body cameras on it. So when they review that use of force incident, the reviewer is going to say, well, Officer Jones, you had an opportunity to de-escalate. But looking at the video, we can see where your language, your positioning, your posture, your aggressiveness, your this, your that sort of escalated the situation with a person who was being um, subdued, maybe felt um, their life was in jeopardy. Or again, de-escalation helps the, the officer to kind of better assess the situation. What if the person doesn't speak English? What if the person is physically handicapped? What if the person has a mental illness? What if the person uh, has autism? What if a person is intoxicated? There are a lot of reasons why officers should, again, when it's possible, safe, practical, do so, should do a situation awareness and kind of slow the situation down by themselves more time, allow for additional resources to be available, and again, uh, get the person to voluntarily comply, if you can do so. Now, if the person is armed and dangerous, obviously, the officer has to go right into a more of a tactical mode 
And, um, and the situation is different because that person poses imminent danger to that officer or someone else, then obviously de-escalation may not be your first option, but that's very important. And again, if an officer is sort of out of control, those have a duty to intervene. Otherwise, they could be held complicit. And to switch the topic, when I first met you at the National Law Enforcement Museum, you mentioned that you research in the mental health of law enforcement. Could you explain and elaborate on that research? Well, not necessarily research with law enforcement. Again, the research is um, a mental health and their interaction with law enforcement. And uh, again, as I mentioned, law enforcement officers may encounter someone who has a mental health issue. So my, my, my research is not necessarily the mental health of law enforcement officers. It's more mental health and the people that law enforcement officers encounter. Oh, okay. Well, then could you elaborate on that topic? When I started looking into this and I started digging into the, uh, the whole mental health piece and de-escalation, and some of the factors, reasons why officers should attempt to de-escalate, because it's very common. I was surprised. I don't have the numbers right with me, but law enforcement officers may have someone who is potentially suicidal, has some anxiety issues, or has some developmental de- delayed issues, or Alzheimer's. I mean, they may encounter someone who's mentally unstable. And they could really, again, their actions could trigger, again, someone who's autistic. So that, that, was my, that was my aspect. That was my angle, the mental health part of it, is to help the officers, again, kind of diffuse and slow the situation down because if they encounter someone, you may hear about an officer telling an individual to, to get out of the car. Maybe the person is physically handicapped. They can't move. So that, that part of de-escalation or in the mental health part of it helps the officer that people could have. And I've heard of different topics such as, you know, bringing a volunteering uh, program where people are sent out to mental health issues, uh, people with mental illnesses, but instead of actual cops going there, it's people that are unarmed and people that have, have been trained to do so. What is your opinion on that? I think it's a good idea because uh, officers have a lot of responsibility. Now, now, are you going to train officers to be um, psychologists or clinical psychologists or mental health professionals? Um, probably not, but I mean, uh, you can give officers some tools and resources. And perhaps if that department has a person who can be quickly dispatched, I mean, a person is about to jump off of a bridge, you want to bring somebody on the scene once the situation has been declared safe negotiation skills, so to speak, or uh, again, they've been, they've been properly trained. Now, you may have some officers who are very good at doing this on their own, but I think if your department has available resources, again, a person who is professional in, uh, in mental health issues, this is this some kind of prolonged standoff between law enforcement and, uh, and the person, we're bringing somebody who is a public health or uh, mental health uh, uh, professional, then I think those resources are, are, are important. That's why it's important that the officer uses his or her language and uh, de-escalation skills, again, to help the person understand. Maybe they say, well, going back to the misuse of force and combining it with how officers have to treat the mentally ill, how do you think that trust within the community and the police or just law enforcement in general can be strengthened? To, uh, you know, I mean, 
depends on the demographics of their local area neighborhoods. I mean, police are more involved with um, uh, individuals and they see officers are showing more compassion for the people that uh, they're encountering. I mean, I think this is, a, this is gonna be a, 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 a slow incremental process because there's a lot of mistrust out there in the community with law enforcement. I mean, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's gonna be a challenge for sure. But I think if officers continue the, 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 in the direction that they're going, the, the law enforcement departments and law enforcement community continues down this path of making law enforcement officers and citizens a priority, the relationship. I know when I grew up in, DC, in the Washington, D.C. area, in local Maryland area, um, local police officers sort of knew the people in their community. So there was a, uh, maybe officers lived in that community. So there was more of a relationship there. So I think some departments still require officers to live in the local vicinity to help, again, foster that kind of relationship. But uh, it's a process. And going a little bit outside of the topic of use of force, mm -hmm. how, do, how else do you think the public and media misunderstand law enforcement or policing in general? Um, I, I think the media, very, media definitely plays a very important role and um, and reestablish this relationship because uh, sometimes the media what they would show are sound bites, snapshots of what actually happened, and they may not show the whole, the totality of what happened. And maybe if uh, the media would sometimes may have to sensationalize a story again, so by the time the the, the public gets word of what happened. The media has already put sort of a spin on it. I don't know. And so, but but again, law enforcement, we use the media as a tool. We want certain information to get out. We're looking for suspects. We're looking for people, eyewitnesses. Uh, so the relationship between law enforcement and the media has to work hand in hand. So when people get the story about what happened, maybe you know, better a better idea that the maybe law enforcement officer acted appropriately. I mean, I recall a situation where there was a, a young lady who was being attacked by several other young girls. She called the police and said she was in a fight, whatever. But the situation, the officer was dispatched. He arrives on the scene and another girl was a, had a knife above this girl's head. And the officer shot the young lady and killed her. And people saying, an officer, he shot a 16-year-old girl. So that was what was presented on the news. but. What about the fact that an officer saved the life of the girl who would have been stabbed by the other girl? I, I didn't hear that part of it really emphasized until later on. That, and I say at the time, I thought that was a, a justifiable use of deadly force. And people say, well, well, he had options. He should have used a taser. Well, a taser may not be effective in that situation to an officer. And again, the use of force, as you heard me mention, has to be reasonable under the circumstances, under the totality of circumstances. Force has to be reasonable based upon the facts known to that officer at that time. Now it's easy to use 2020 hindsight and second guess the officer. And I think that 2020 hindsight by the media sometimes may cause an officer to kind of hesitate. Maybe there's gonna be some criticism and scrutiny and public you know, outcry about use of force, but 
when it, and it goes to court, they're going to ask was that officer's use of force, was it reasonable based upon what the officer knew at that particular time? So I think the media and law enforcement and the citizens, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that have to be done to make that relationship work better. I really do hope the relations between the media and the police are much better than it is now, because usually if you go on the news or on just social media or just media in general, you'll find stories of police officers have having encounters that could probably be an hour long, but they only get like a 15 second snapshot of them doing right or being shown to be in the wrong. So I feel like that's a really huge issue with how the media portrays law enforcement. But um, yes, there have been situations where media has shown law enforcement as beneficial, but it ultimately comes down to how the media portrays them in the future. And so my next question is, uh, what does defund the police or more recently the FBI mean to you? And why shouldn't law enforcement be defunded? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of studies and um, reports that show that if you defund the police, obviously uh, less police officers will be hired, response time will be slower, uh, there's a correlation between um, weakened police departments and crime. Crime will elevate because, uh, again, police officers' response will be slower. Uh, you won't be able to have enough officers to respond to a certain crime, high crime area, because the, the, the resources are spread thin. Now, I believe in accountability. I think police officers should spend a lot more of their dollars in training and um providing other resources for officers. But to me, I think the whole defund the police was said out of anger and frustration. And I, I get that because of a lot of incidents, again, the George Floyd case, um, um, several other cases, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, some of the other cases that, were, that you've seen in the news where officers use force and people were saying, well, police officers, just a bunch of renegades out here doing things. So maybe we will fund them or defund the police. In some areas, and they got Minnesota, they were saying that you should get rid of the police department altogether. I mean, so I think there is a direct correlation between high crime areas. I mean, if you take, you defund the police in, say, for instance, in Chicago. I mean, Chicago, the crime rate is, um, is it's, it's out of control. Uh, some of the other uh, major inner city areas, crime rate is very high. So if you defund the police and you weaken the police department, um, I just don't see how that's a viable, sustainable solution um, to what's occurring. Again, maybe providing some additional resources for training, uh, hiring practices. Um, I think if departments would do a better job in screening individuals, the hiring practices, make sure you hire someone. For example, if an individual is going to work in a um, very diverse uh, community, you may ask the officer, well, how do you feel about working in an environment where people are a lot different than you are? Racial profiling and the biases because officers are really not aware of working in certain environments. So I think hiring practices, training, again, on the front end, Hiring good qualified people on the front end, being proactive on the front end, 
I think will minimize down the road officers who may have some of the biases. Again, part of the process, they look at civil rights matters. Was your use of force in violation of someone's civil rights based upon race, sex, gender, orientation, age, some of the other protected uh, groups under civil rights? Maybe that person just really does not have the... uh, um, the cognitive or the compassion ability to work with people in different environments. And again, again, from, I was heavily involved in training. I really am a a strong proponent of training. So I think these are kind of things on the front end, but I don't think DS, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm putting DS part again. Uh, Defunding the police is the answer. I don't think that's, that's the way to go. I definitely agree with that. And especially in my past interviews, when I asked police officers, and actually a chief for my first interview, when I asked him and other officers about the defund the police and what it means to them, really it comes down to the same answer that it really does limit police officers' resources to be at calls on time, to just have a better police force in general. Yeah, but what if we said, well, let's uh, defund airline pilots, defund doctors. I mean, I mean, so you need law enforcement to provide safety in your in, in in the community, you definitely need police officers. As a matter of fact, I think you should they should increase law enforcement's ability to hire more uh, police officers. If anything, they they should again, I believe in, in in accountability, but they should provide additional law enforcement resources to put in these neighborhoods. More policing and other topics such as innovative policing strategies, just basically mean that smarter cops should be a thing. Mm-hmm which I do believe that all cops that have gone through the academy and have gone through training even after the academy have what right. it takes to be a police officer. Finally, in the future, how would you like the image of law enforcement to be changed? Well, I think when we get back to what law enforcement, again, was when I was a young, young kid, be more, we talk about the community, law enforcement is the community. We law enforcement should be part of the community, uh, involved in every aspect of the community, making sure relationships between law enforcement, more activities between law enforcement officers, again, to break down some of these barriers between law enforcement uh, and, 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 and citizens. Um, I think that go a long way. But uh, now, again, I, and I understand the outcry between people in, uh, you know, I know in, in the African-American community, there's a, a high level of mistrust between law enforcement officers and that community because of incidents that have occurred, racial profiling, uh, seems like there's a, a, a disparity in uh, use of force incidents. Um, so, I mean, uh, again, law enforcement officers have to do a better job in trying to make sure that their activities, their actions, their response, their interactions with individuals are more, um, more positive. And um, right now, again, as I said before, I understand the outcry. Being African-American and law enforcement, uh, I certainly understand the frustration and the, the anxiety that's established there. But, um, but just in general, I think law enforcement officers really, really need to make a better effort, more highly concentrated effort to reestablish the relationship between law enforcement and citizens. I completely agree with that. And is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, but I, I thank you for your uh, uh, interest in doing this and making sure that I think if people hear 
your your program, they will get a better better idea that there are law enforcement officers who really do care about how we're perceived as law enforcement and how much we want to make a difference in our communities. I mean, I, I'm a father of four, and what my my kids understand it. If they get stopped by a law enforcement officer, it doesn't always have to be a a, a, a dangerous situation. They can, uh, whatever the situation is, they're stopped. They can go through that process and not feel their life is being threatened. Uh, so uh, I think with the greater emphasis on policy by law enforcement agencies, training law enforcement agencies, uh, making changes to make the more appropriate to the environment we're living in, and once that part gets out, that law enforcement officers are doing sort of a, a paradigm shift. They're doing longer the emphasis on just grabbing people, handcuffing them, picking them under arrest. Now, if it's possible, safe practice they're going to do so, officers are trying to do things differently to, again, defuse, de-escalate the situation, and hopefully come to a better law enforcement citizen interaction and conclusion to that process. I hope it really is a universal truth where everyone not only learns to address the law enforcement, but makes that a solid precedent to trust the law, to trust law enforcement, because especially everything that you just talked about with the use of force and how use of force should be treated with mental illness and accountability. It just all makes sense that the police and law enforcement are working on those things. Yeah, I think there's, there's a, there's a, 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 high push for that. I mean, um, again, no one wants to be that department that has officers who are perceived as being out of control. I mean, every every chief, I would think, wants to make sure the officers are properly uh, engaging with people and they're doing everything they can to make sure that use of force is a, a secondary, only when it's necessary. Again, if it's reasonable and it's proportional, and they use only that amount of force necessary. But if there's other options, that's why de-escalation is very important. It gives an officer additional options. And otherwise, other, instead of using just straightly using force, which is the perception in some, some cases. It may not be the reality, but that's the perception that people have. For sure. And uh, thank you very much for your time, Mr. Humphrey. Uh, I really... I really appreciate that you took your time to set this meeting up, especially with all the difficulty we had just before this. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you are in Washington, D.C., make sure to stop by the National Law Enforcement Museum. There you will find Mr. Humphrey teaching the use of force class. In less than an hour, you will learn how law enforcement in general have to deal with tough situations. Thank you again and stay tuned for more episodes.